I've got to say. I'm kind of giddy at being able to be back in the pulpit here. Um, I, if I had to do over again, I had titled this sermon before I had really had the, the opportunity that I wanted to um, take to look at it. I think I would have retitled this um, sermon, Hard-Hearted Christianity. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your word would um, be like a hammer where it needs to be a hammer in order to um, break hard hearts. God, I ask where it needs to be a pillow to comfort um, downcast Christians. I ask that it would be that pillow upon which they rest in Jesus Christ. Father, I uh, don't know all the needs uh, in every heart uh, this morning, but I pray that your word would uh, be like a um, finely sharpened arrow to uh, find every heart uh, where they are and uh, bring us all to a renewed trust, faith, and love for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. What I love about Uganda is the ease with which you can speak with complete strangers about the Gospel. And basically, all you have to do, it's not rocket science, you walk up to them, whether they're at their whether they're at their place of work, whether they're in their home, whether they're on a street corner, and you simply ask them directly, may I speak to you about God? If they are not able to receive you, they'll tell you um, very plainly, uh, no. But uh, even if they tell you no, uh, they're always very cordial. But most likely, they will say to you, you are most welcome. Uh, the hardest part of evangelism for me is the first ten seconds. Uh, once the conversation's engaged, I feel like I'm in my wheelhouse. But the first ten seconds are so difficult, I believe, because of the anticipation of possible rejection. Being rejected by a stranger is nothing being compared uh, or compared to being rejected by a friend or a close loved one. And I'm not talking about a loved one rejecting the gospel. I'm talking about a close friend or a loved one rejecting you. Few things are more difficult to bear than someone ending a relationship and turning their back on the love that was once shared between the two people. The reason I mention this is even Jesus was sensitive to the pain caused when someone uh, very close to Him, someone who had shared three and a half years of His life, uh, broke that relationship uh, that they had shared together. So uh, I'm going to back up just to refresh your memory a little bit to verse 18 and read verses 18 through 21. Uh, Jesus had just finished washing the disciples' feet. Uh, 
And uh, he began speaking to them. And one of the things he said, verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus was troubled in his soul over Judas's betrayal. The word that he used, or that is used for him being troubled um, conveys that he was agitated, that he was without peace in his spirit. I do not think it is too strong to say that Jesus was in turmoil over Judas's betrayal. The passage quoted in verse. Um, in verse 18, uh, it's from Psalm 41, verse 9, where it says, he, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What this means is that um, you've given hospitality and care to a person, and in return, they have lifted their heel against you. In other words, they have kicked you in the teeth. Um, that's the, the sense of what Jesus is saying here that, that Judas has done to, uh, to Jesus. And that's what it felt like for Jesus when Judas decided to betray him. Jesus had shared his life with Judas. Jesus had entrusted Judas with keeping the money bag for the disciples. He was the, the treasurer, if you will. Uh, Jesus authorized Judas to be his representative as he sent Judas and the other apostles or disciples out to preach the kingdom of God. And when Judas preached, according to Matthew chapter 10, he performed miracles of healing. He was able to cast out demons. And he preached the kingdom of God. Judas's rejection of Jesus troubled Jesus deeply. It is important to know that it does uh, trouble Jesus when people who are said to belong to him reject him. Jesus is not emotionally apathetic. Matthew uh, chapter 23, verse 37, as Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem for that final time, or for that final week, He looks up and He sees, sees Jerusalem on the next hill. And He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Luke 19, verses 41 through 42, um, expands upon this, and it says, When Jesus drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
he's deeply moved and troubled as he looks at Jerusalem. The place where uh, the tabernacle or the, the temple was placed. The, the, the capital city of, of um, his people. They had rejected him wholesale. They had rejected all the prophets that he had sent to them. And now he knows that uh, bouncing off the, the parable of the, the um, vineyard where the master kept sending uh, messengers to the, the workers in the vineyard, they killed all the messengers and finally killed the son saying, we'll have complete control over the vineyard uh, if we kill the son. And so Jesus is, um, is moved. And, and the, what I'm driving at is I hope it is abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is a loving Savior. He does not turn His back forever, even when we turn our back on Him. He holds out His arms even to the unrepentant. Do you have areas of your life that are turned against Him? Are there areas of, you, of your life that you know are so displeasing to God that you are fearful that God has turned His back on you forever? I want to encourage you. You turn to Him. He will receive you. Now let me make a parenthetical statement. By saying that Christ holds out His arms to the unrepentant, I'm not, all, I'm not saying that Jesus is not also stern and full of wrath toward the unrepentant. Uh, for the eternal God, many things that are contradictory to our minds are complementary. God does not ignore one aspect of His nature uh, in order to act in keeping with another aspect of His nature. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, but He also poured out His wrath upon Jerusalem and upon its inhabitants. Jesus agonized over Judas's betrayal, but Judas today is in hell suffering Christ's wrath. And so it will be with you if you keep aspects of your life in unrepentance. If you say to God, hands off, you are not allowed here. One day in Uganda, I did some street preaching in the city of Entebbe which is right on the shores of uh, Lake Victoria. And you're going to see some pictures of some of the other guys doing the street preaching. I was so nervous because I was about to get up and preach in this great market. Um, but I didn't think to ask anybody to take a picture of me while I was preaching. Um, but uh, I stood up and preached for a half hour very earnestly. Um, I preached on Matthew 7, 21 through 23. That passage says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And listen to what Jesus will declare to them. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
it strikes me that Judas fits this passage so closely. He said, Lord, Lord. He preached in the name of the Lord. He cast out demons in the name of the Lord. He did mighty works in the name of the Lord. Yet he was a lawless man. And Jesus never knew Judas as his Savior. But this passage in Matthew 7 does not say that simply one person fits this passage. Uh, the Matthew 7 passage says, Many will say to me on that day. In other words, many are saying, Lord, Lord. I think this passage addresses unrepentant Christians. Christians who very sincerely say, Lord, Lord, yet they will hear Jesus on the day of judgment say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. A person can say, Lord, Lord, very earnestly for many decades and never know Jesus Christ. If you remain in unrepentance, it is very likely you don't know Him and you are not known by the Lord. I'm going to pause at this moment, at, uh, at this point just to consider verses um, 22 through 26 for a few moments. We've all seen Leonardo uh, da Vinci's painting of the Lord's Supper. And they have Jesus, or he has Jesus and the disciples sitting in chairs. And uh, that is a complete distortion of what took place during that first communion meal. Special meals in, in Eastern culture of that time did not include chairs. They had cushions on the floor. And people reclined at the table by leaning on their left elbow and eating with their right hand. And it was interesting. Um, I'm eating with all these pastors uh, in the Church of Uganda, which was an Anglican church. And I looked up, you know, and I've got my fork. And I looked and several of the guys are eating their rice and their matoki and, and stuff like that just with their fingers. And that's what uh, Jesus and the disciples were doing as they were eating the meal. They were eating with their right hand as they leaned on their left elbow with their legs kind of a little bit behind them. And so as it went around, everybody leaning to their left, leaning on their left elbow, the, other per the person to the right would be leaning in toward them. And so this passage has Jesus leaning on his, his arm and um, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is, is leaning in toward him. So his head would be somewhat near Jesus' chest. Um, after Jesus announced that one of his disciples would betray him, the disciples are very curious to know who it was. But Jesus doesn't say who. And of course, Simon Peter, being Simon Peter, uh, he's very impatient to know who it is. Since Jesus is not saying, apparently he's maybe across the table from Jesus and John, and so he motions to John, who is it? And so it says here in verse 25 that um, John leaned back into Jesus. So verse 25. So that disciple 
talking about John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Um, and apparently Jesus whispered or said very low, uh, in a low voice to John, um, in such a way that none of the other disciples heard it. So verse 26, Jesus' answer, Jesus answered, uh, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So uh, this is what's happening, and this is the reason that the other disciples don't know what's happening. It's because I believe, and several commentators agree, that this was a private conversation between John and Jesus. When we come to verse 27, Satan enters into Judas. It's interesting that John says that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. So you look back at uh, chapter 13, verse 2. John says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So Judas had already thought about it. In fact, he had not only thought about it, he had acted upon it. He had gone to the uh, chief priest and to the Pharisees and agreed to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. So he'd already had this meeting. But apparently there's a little bit of indecision. It's in his heart, but he's there. Jesus begins washing his feet. And um, when you come to verse 27, it appears that the, the decision has been finalized. Uh, as I was thinking about this, I began to um, to come to the conclusion that Judas became more hardened, more unrepentant in steps. In other words, he was a thief earlier. He was dipping in the the uh, the money bag and keeping a bit for himself. But then, as he did that, his heart became a little harder. And then there was this time in chapter 12, remember where the, uh, this woman poured this expensive uh, oxnard, this perfume on Jesus' feet? And uh, Judas is thinking to himself, what a waste. All this money could have been used uh, to feed the poor, but really he's thinking, what a waste. This money could have come into the treasure, into our little private treasury, and I could have dipped out of it. And Jesus rebukes him. And so his heart, his heart is, is hardened even more. And then he comes to the foot washing. And this is my own supposition. Uh, you can take it for what, it, for what you, you, uh, for what you will. Um, but I was thinking, here's Judas. He loves money. Apparently, he also loves power because he had uh, gotten, him slotted, gotten himself slotted into a place of leadership within the band of the disciples. And so, Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe he's thinking, if I hitch my wagon to Jesus, I'll ride up the elevator of power and wealth with him uh, when he comes into his glory. But during that meal, 
before the meal actually, Jesus strips down and then ties a towel around his waist. And instead of acting like a conquering king, like the, the, the picture of the Messiah that Judas had uh, in his mind, Jesus is the exact opposite. He humbles Himself. He takes the place of, of the lowest in society and goes around and washes His servants' feet. And I can imagine Judas despising Jesus at that moment. The, the reason why I was thinking about this is it. Is it, was it just greed that was motivating uh, Judas to do this most wicked of, of, of acts in all of history? And I thought, no, it's probably a little bit more. And, I, and, and him despising Jesus um, would certainly uh, fit for, for why he's doing this. But that's my own supposition. Take it for what you will. The point here, and I think this is indisputable, that Judas became more and more hardened in steps. Um, and really, that's the way sin works. One sin leads to the next. And as one continues to sin without repentance, it becomes easier to sin the next time. Sins practiced become sins habituated. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And we follow the path of Judas when we continue in sin without repenting. It is striking that Judas, being an unbeliever, was able to fool all the other disciples. They lived their lives together, yet none of them seemed to suspect him. Matthew's account says that all the disciples went around the table asking Jesus when he announced that someone would betray him, that uh, all the disciples asked, Is it I? None of them thought to ask, is it Judas? Such was his deception. And even more remarkable, Judas was one of the disciples who asked, Is it I? Uh, his deceit warns us um, that it is possible to be very deceitful even as a very close follower of Jesus. His deceit warns us that it's possible to be an active member of a church and be regarded as a Christian by everyone, yet still not be a believer. The length to which hypocrisy can go without detection by others is very awful. Thomas Brooks, the, the Puritan, says that the snow covers many a dunghill. A snowy white profession covers many a foul heart. The sins of professing Christians are more repugnant. Weeds are bad in a field, but worse in a garden. The sins of the wicked anger God, but the sins of professing Christians grieve Him. It is very sobering to read in verse 27 
that Satan was active in a human heart even during the very first communion meal. And I think we should remember that when we observe the Lord's Supper. I think we need to remember also that satanic influence is active in the temptations that we face. That's why Jesus said, uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, that we could uh, also read that passage, deliver us from temptation, or, or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, I believe that's implied there in the Lord's Prayer. In Uganda, I had a man claiming to be a witch doctor that, that sought me out. <laughs> I'll tell you about that uh, over, over our dinner. I also had to physically lift a girl off the ground um, because she was unconscious and drooling um, heavily from her mouth because she was suffering some kind of satanic influence. And she hit the ground like a sack of rocks. Um, as um, as uh, Dr. Krabendam was, was praying for her, uh, for God to, to send His Spirit into her heart uh, and life to change her. There are reports in the news that I've read recently that many young people are experimenting with demonic practices out of curiosity. I'll tell you, and I've never said this before, a young man that used to be in this congregation had uh, experience with some of these things and was under such torment and, and things were happening that uh, he could not explain um, that he ended up moving away. But he called me uh, in pretty much desperation and I traveled to the city where he's now living and myself and another pastor in that city met with him for about, I think, six hours. Uh, the pastor did the talking while I did the praying the entire six hours. Um, and uh, I want to exhort you, especially you young people, in the strongest possible way I know how, do not mess around with things that you do not understand. Satan was active there at the first communion meal. In our culture, it is very easy to think that he is either not active or not as real. And uh, I assure you, he is. And let me say this also, uh, just in thinking of uh, James chapter 4. If you are suffering temptation, resist Satan. Or, or, or First Peter, resist him. He'll flee from you. Um, I want to make one final application, and then I'm going to be finished. I spent a lot of time over this past three weeks reading and meditating upon Second Corinthians, um, really because of the first several chapters, Paul's missionary uh, attitude. He's an ambassador. For Christ, uh, and so as I was thinking about about Second uh, Corinthians, I was also thinking about the sermon and about uh, this idea that I've been talking to you about in terms of unrepentant Christianity. Uh, and I remembered reading in Second Corinthians chapter three about the Israelites, and they were growing hardened in their unrepentance. And because of the Israelites' unrepentance, a veil covered their eyes as they read the Scriptures. 
And only as they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ is the veil removed. So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. You don't need to turn there, but, but, but uh, listen to this passage. It says, Their minds, talking about the Israelites, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And I've always thought about that only in terms of them not believing in the Messiah. But this is coming in response to hardening and and unrepentance. And the thought occurred to me. Many Christians talk about how big a struggle it is to read the Scriptures and get something out of it. And I've always thought, well, that's you know a lack of discipline or lack of reading ability, lack of understanding the, the Bible. But the thought hit me um, last week. And it, I wonder if the struggle to read the Scriptures is caused more by areas of unrepentance than by a lack of discipline or reading ability? I don't know the answer to that question. But I think I would like for you to ponder it for yourself, especially in, as, a, as a point of, of self-examination in your heart and your life. Uh, because I know when you are seeking the Lord, the Lord opens up His Scriptures rather than closing them off. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to You confessing that we have all been on Judas's path at one time or another, to one degree or another. We confess before You our sin of hypocrisy. We confess that we have played the part of a Christian and played it very well and convincingly. And even sometimes very loudly to be displayed by others. Other times we have, uh, we have closed our mouths and been very silent in order to cover up um, the inward turmoil that we uh, desperately uh, wanted to hide from others and even from You. Lord, neither of these behaviors um, come from You, and it shows our uh, need always of Your ever-renewing grace. Uh, You are the one, Father, who grants repentance. Father, I pray that uh, your repentance would be granted across this, this congregation this morning. God, we pray that your Spirit would awaken us to our great need of you to be uh, our Master every moment, and that we need at every moment to have our arms wrapped around the Lord Jesus Christ, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus, we thank You that You were willing to be crucified for such a people as we are. 
We thank You that You came and died for us. We praise You that You were raised for our justification. We worship You because You are our risen Lord. Pour out Your grace. We love You. We need You. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.